Welcome to History City. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're telling the story of York from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. In this episode, it seems that this city, for one brief moment, is the most important place in England. Now, let the spirit of York remind us how we got here. In history, the spotlight often shines on just one particular player, sidelining all the others on stage at the time. We've already heard how, in the 1170s, there is royal family strife and rebellions, brutally suppressed by King Henry II. The penalties inflicted on York by him, and then money demanded by his son Richard I, for a crusade in the Middle East, led to terrible consequences for a group of people who were meant to be under the king's protection. In 1173-4, there had been a really major rebellion against the authority of the king, Henry II. It's known as the Young King's War, um, because one of his sons rebelled against him. And this war, the Young King's War, which lasted several years, swept across Henry II's territories in France as well as in England. My name is Sarah Rhys-Jones and I'm a Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of York. Northerners never like rule from the South. Northerners were particularly keen to flock to support this uprising and there was a, a senior northern nobleman who was of Norman descent but it didn't matter he was a northerner Roger of Mowbray for example was one of the local ringleaders. If you're wondering who the young king was it's another Henry. As he was the oldest son to survive into childhood Henry II had young Henry crowned at the age of 15 so he had titles but no power which made him popular probably also helped by his love of flashy tournaments. His rebellion in 1173, apparently over lack of money, nearly toppled his father and they reached a deal. But there was another family dispute ten years later and he died of dysentery while fighting in France against his father and brother Richard, the next king. The Young King's War is also an opportunity for the Scots to invade again, always keen to invade the north of England. And Henry II has had to come north and suppress this sort of combined civil uprising and Scottish invasion with immense force in 1173 to 4. But Henry II's um, punishment of the north, if you like, is a bit like a rerun of the harrying of the north nearly 100 years earlier, 100 years earlier doesn't end there. Um, a lot of local people who've supported this uprising against him are tried and are fined huge sums of money. I mean, some of the citizens of York, who are Christian citizens of York, who are fined for supporting this rebellion, they pay larger fines than any other fines that are recorded at that stage in history. So they're really being punished. And he also imposes lots of new taxes. So it's not physical, the destruction. It's not about um, raping and pillaging, as perhaps the harrying of the North was. This is about fiscal oppression and using the law and using royal finance to um, suppress the North and kick them in, into shape. Now, there's an event in 1190, which is fairly notorious and is a mm. dark chapter in York's history. It involves a set of people 
who also appear to have come in with the Norman French, mm. and that's the Jews. Yes. Why did they come in, and how did they settle down, and how were they received? Well, exactly. The, the Jews who moved to England after the Norman conquest are French, uh, French-speaking, and probably come from Rouen, where it's a very large Jewish community, and uh, as an important town of the Norman dukes. Initially, they settle in the south of the country. There's been a lot of speculation about when they might have moved to the north, but the evidence that we've got, the written evidence from administrative records and so on, suggests that they moved to the York via communities that were established earlier, further to the south, so Lincoln in particular. And they move here from Lincoln, where Aaron of Lincoln is one of the most powerful members of the Jewish community in the reign of Henry II. So we're talking about the 1170s, when Jews probably settle in York. I mean, we know there are Jews who had visited York before then, but in terms of establishing a settled community, it's almost certainly in the 1170s, which is significant. And among the best evidence that we have for that is that in 1177, the Jews of Lincoln buy a plot of land outside the walls of York for a cemetery. So that suggests that the community is settled enough that they need a burial ground. Um, and the original burial ground for the Jews of York is bought by the Jews of Lincoln. So again, that kind of indication that they're moving from Lincoln into York. If the Jews are buying their cemetery in 1177, these French-speaking Jews, under special protection of the king, are moving into the city in the immediate aftermath of the suppression of that northern uprising. So you can see how they wouldn't be popular and that they would be associated with royal government and with with the sort of... Uh, this kind of financial oppression that's going on uh, of the North under Henry II. So they're not well regarded, basically, because they're part of the financial apparatus of the Crown. Yes. Now, Norwich is a big centre. Yes. And there's been some recent archaeological discussion about a massacre of Jews there. And the genetic evidence shows that actually that they kept themselves to themselves, mm. but really, that they intermarried within their own community. Mm. And presumably that is the same in Lincoln and in York as well. I don't know if that same genetic research has been done on skeletons from York, but uh, obviously Jews are of a different faith from Christians, and although religious law does change within even within the Jewish community over time, it was a custom at the time that they would prefer intermarriage in order to maintain the kind of purity of the Jewish people and, and that descent moved through the female line or descent in the faith moved through the female line so that women would be encouraged to marry other, other Jews. There are various stories in various miracle collections of relationships that broke those rules and even more evidence from the continent, in fact, that Jews... Christians and Moors or Muslims intermarried but we're talking about a very small Jewish community at this time and the Jewish community at York has been estimated at no more than 150 people and as I say very new so if they're arriving here around about the mid 1170s the the massacre of the Jews in 1190 that you referred to earlier uh, the community is less than 15 years old I'm standing on top of one of York's most famous landmarks the stone castle keep known as Clifford's Tower. Although it's only been called that for 300 years. Previous versions, as we've discussed before, date back to the arrival of William I 
and were made of timber. They were repeatedly burned to the ground and then rebuilt to enforce the power of the crown. But in the long, blood-soaked history of York, one of those incidents continues to echo down to the present day. In 1190, there was an outbreak of violence against York's small Jewish community. They sought refuge in the castle and were besieged. The roots of that hatred are complex, but the results were horrifyingly simple. More than 100 people were murdered or chose to commit suicide. As history, it can't be ignored, but it's an uncomfortable episode for a city that today regards itself as a place of sanctuary for newcomers and refugees. Recording this at the end of 2023, though, now doesn't seem the right time to discuss the details. However, we're planning to return to the contribution that the Jewish and other incoming communities have made to York's life and fabric in future programmes. I mean, it's one of the big misunderstandings about the massacre, or it can be, that people tend to think that was it, that was the end of the Jewish community in York, but actually it was the beginning. And we know that by the 13th century, and again there's discussion about just how quickly, not that Jews had recovered, but that other Jews had moved back into the city and a Jewish community had been re-established in the city. And it goes on by the 1230s to be one of the largest and most prosperous and most influential Jewish communities in the country. And Aaron of York in the 1230s is elected as the Arch-Presbyter, that means the leader of the Jews of the whole of England. What's the relationship with the clergy? Um, Well... Possibly better in that um, some kind of learned Christian clergy at the time have a scholarly interest in Hebrew and Judaism. And the Archbishop of York, a little bit earlier, has already invited um, learned Jews to come to the city and to discuss matters of faith with him. Uh, But on the financial sides of things, there's clear evidence that... um, you know, you mentioned that the Jews can lend money, that Jews are lending money to ecclesiastical institutions as well as to local landowners. And also that in some ways they're, they're competition because the church also lends money. I know that sounds like they shouldn't, but particularly the wealthier monastic houses also effectively find ways of lending money as well. So they're also in a kind of competitive situation with the church too. But It's interesting, actually. I mean, a hundred years later, when Jews are expelled from England in 1290, one of the leading York churchmen, John Romain, Archbishop of York, actually goes out of his way to visit one of the exiled Jewish leaders, Boniface, in Paris. So it's not a cartoon book, you know. It's not as black and white as Christians and Jews being always hostile to each other. There's a much more nuanced and complicated set of relationships than that. So I'm juggling with all this. Is that brief reign of Richard I, Mm. who doesn't really seem to have had much interest in England at all. Mm. And then his brother, who I think is regarded by most historians as a very bad king. King John we're talking about now, yes. (laughs) Yes. I've heard stronger language used about him. Mm. He's famous for signing charters. Yes. But one of the things that King John did was he actually gave a charter to York, didn't he? He did. Um... He didn't just sign the charters, he sold them, I mean, or his government did. And, and not just in England, but in, in his territories in France as well, because it was a good source of revenue. He was running out of cash, he was losing control of Normandy, trying to hang on to it, and he needed money. 
and selling charters to local towns, whether it was Bordeaux or York, who I think both get charters in the same year, was a way of raising large sums of, of cash. Oh, it's interesting that York had begun to sue for a charter around about 1190. And I do wonder if sometimes it didn't get its charter that it wanted then because the Crown wanted to punish it for the the massacre of the Jews in 1190. So instead of being one of the first county towns, as you might expect to get one of these uh, new charters, it was actually one of the last, which is quite interesting. And so it gets it from John. What does a charter actually mean? The charter conveys essentially to the citizens of York the right to govern their own city, to hold their own court, to hold their own pleas. Um, and in a sense, they already had that by long practice, in a way. So in some ways, it's simply confirming what already happened. But it is increasingly the case in this period, and as we move into the future, the later 13th century, that city corporations or major landowners are increasingly unable to defend their rights in royal courts unless they have a written title that says, this is what you're allowed to do. So really the Charter of 1212 is is confirming rights of self-government to the citizens of York as a corporate body and rights of trade through the empire and so on. And those rights are continuously going to be elaborated and refined in successive charters. But to some extent, their rights that they'd, or to quite a large extent, in fact, their rights that they'd, they'd claimed and exercised through long practice, probably since before the Norman Conquest. So it's a licence confirming exactly. what they've already yeah. got. And you said that King John sold these charters. Yes, like How- confetti. <laughs> How much did York buy? If I remember correctly, and you're really testing my memory in many ways, I think it was £120. Or that might have been the annual sort of charge farm that they paid to the king. Sorry, that's something else I'd have to look up. Sounds like a bargain. Well worth the money, if you ask me. But although the inhabitants of York might seem to be prizing control of their affairs away from the south, they also have to keep a constant and wary eye on people even further north. You mentioned the Scots. Yes. And how the Scots like to get involved. Now, the thing that struck me from my reading is that England has been a single entity for about 300 years by, mm. by now. But Scotland's still a work in progress. Yes. And it's a bit difficult to work out where Scotland begins and... England ends and the Scots seem to have some idea that they would like what's seen as a bit of England. But yes, until something like 1237, there's nothing like a border between England and Scotland. So we think of a border in the sense of a line on the map. So there's no map and there's no line on it and there's no, no border. There's a sort of no man's land in those the Cheviot Hills and the Northern Pennines is what we would think of it now. Um, where the distinction between what is England and what is Scotland is very blurred. And there are also competing claims. So the Scottish kings claim jurisdiction over the northern counties of England. It's a bit fictional, but they claim that they want to restore their jurisdiction over the ancient kingdom of Northumbria, which would even include the city of York. But they certainly claim jurisdiction over the three northern counties, Northumberland, um, West and 
what are they called? Cumberland and Westmoreland in the old days, before Cumbria was invented. And of course, um, they're of Norman descent, just like the Normans in England are. So they're intermarried with the Norman aristocracy. So the Scottish barons of, often have territories south of the border anyway by familial rights because they've inherited them or married into uh, those estates. But then in addition, there are claims northwards as well, so slightly different sort of claim. The Archbishops of York are archbishops over an entire province. Um, the church in England is divided into two provinces, Canterbury, which is based in the south, and then the province of York, over which the Archbishops of York have jurisdiction. And that province extends over three dioceses, the Diocese of York, Durham and Carlisle, but they also claim jurisdiction over a fourth diocese, the Diocese of Whithorn or Candida Alba, it's sometimes called, which covers the whole of what we think of as Galloway in southwest Scotland. So the church has claims north of the border as well as the Scots aristocracy and rulers having claims of different sorts south of the border. So it's a really messy situation. And also in both England and Scotland in the 12th century, there are periods of civil conflict where there are uprisings against the kings of England, for example, among some of the English barons, particularly during Stephen's reign when it's disputed whether Stephen or Matilda should be the crowned monarch. And the different families in England and also in Scotland will take opposing sides. They don't necessarily support their ruling monarch. So the real politics can be extremely messy with Scots barons allying with English barons and, and vice versa. So we have a very stable situation, relatively speaking, in which there is a Kingdom of England and a Kingdom of Scotland, and that's been roughly true now since the 14th century, I suppose, that those kingdoms have been stable entities but neither of them were stable entities in the 12th century it's really complicated I don't know how to describe it simply and you don't want to go into all the detail I couldn't remember all the detail anyway so um, <laughs> no I mean the, the, when I was reading up on this the word untidy yes <laughs> yes <laughs> sprang to yes, mind yeah. because the current situation is extremely logical untidy Yes. And um, Scotland broadly looks after its own affairs and there are a few clashes with the government in Westminster but then I think quite a few people in Yorkshire would probably mm. uh, have a similar disagreement. But also, reading up on that, it seems to me that York is at times in the front line but also the forward base for anything that's going on with people in Scotland. Well, call them for the yes. moment. So how does that strategic position impact on the city of York? Yes, I think by everybody it's seen as the chief city in the north and that's partly because it is the cathedral see, for the northern province, partly because of its Roman status. So even early historians like Bede will hark back to the city's Roman status as something that makes it a capital city really for, for Northumbria and the northern region. Um, and so in various conflicts, strategic diplomatic negotiations are often staged in York and in the Minster 
because it has that sort of historical significance. Even by the 12th century, it's understood to have had this great imperial history, which makes it an important place to control. And really, the early Norman kings have built on that sense of its history going back to Roman times, and even exaggerated or um, increased that, that sense of importance by investing quite heavily in the city and turning it into a northern centre for royal government in England. So the first two or three Norman kings built and used a royal house in the city. They created an infrastructure to support that house. And that solidifies the status of the city as a a centre for royal government as well as ecclesiastical government in Northumbria or in the north. And you can see this playing out. Sometimes York comes close to the military action or the military action comes close to York, but more than anything it's used as a centre for staging these diplomatic moments when some kind of truce is is agreed or some kind of moment of conquest is celebrated. And I think one of the largest of those, if you like, is in 1175, when the current King of England is Henry II. He has faced a major challenge to his government from his three sons, Richard, John and Henry, and also from his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who have challenged his government throughout his empire, really. And William, King of Scotland, comes in on the side of those rebels seeking to undermine Henry II's government. So Henry II comes up to the north in 1173 to 4 and in 1175 celebrates his victory over the rebels, but particularly over the Scots, William the Lion of Scotland. And the king and his entire court, but also his entire church, all the senior clerics in his church, are brought to York and forced to pay homage to Henry in York Minster. There must have been a really theatrical occasion and a really significant event in the history of of both of York but also both England and Scotland too. Now if you're going to force people to do that presumably you've got the muscle. Yes yeah. What was this kind of relative balance of power? Henry II comes up it's another group of heavily armed men who are Mm. presumably more heavily armed than the Scots were so to be able to bring an entire court from another country down to York. Mm. That implies that he was fairly tooled up, really. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, the situation over in which he has been successful is a very messy one. So while there are important northern nobles who are opposed to Henry, there are also some important northern nobles who support him as well. And uh, William the Lion had the misfortune of being captured by one of those some years earlier on a raid into North Yorkshire. So Henry succeeds through his own strength, the, the forces that he can command, but he's, he's also lucky as well, in a sense, that there are some things that happen by chance, always, I suppose, in military situations. But the other thing that Henry II has on his side in subduing the north of England and resisting the Scots and keeping the Scots out is the growing power of the state, which is becoming as a bureaucratic machine, is becoming much more elaborate from the reign of Henry II onwards. This is often seen as one of the ways in which the kings of England finally managed to impose their authority on the country is not just through military conquest, but also through developing the means to raise taxation 
and to control the law courts, the system of justice in the country. Um, and increasingly they do that by using written records which record people's tax entitlements or tax um, contributions and also record legal judgments. Disputes over land among the aristocracy could be the most destabilising thing uh, for any ruling government. So to control a legal system where you can uh, enforce law and order, essentially, is increasingly seen as an essential way of stabilising royal government. And Henry II is certainly doing that because it's at the very beginning of new systems of law and order and financial management that depend on written records. But it's one of the things that he's clearly keeping his hands on when he visits the North in 1175 and that visit is also associated not just with humiliating the Scots but also ensuring that all the Northern rebels are brought to book and he uses his courts to impose huge fines on local members of the nobility but also on citizens of York to oppress them really and to uh, try and keep them under his thumb. We've talked about that before, the, the Young King's War, yes. etc. Then you get Richard I, then you get King John. Yes. We talked about his charter in 1212 in York. Then, put it mildly, he's an unpopular king Yes. who dies shortly after the original signing of Magna Carta. Mm. And then his son becomes king. Henry uh, III. Yes. Henry III. And... He seems to have quite rational attitude towards Scotland because he seems to be on quite good terms with whoever's running it. It's Henry III's government that negotiates a relatively lasting truce, whereas Henry II had imposed his rule on the north and uh, on Scotland. Henry III negotiates a diplomatic solution, and he does that largely through visits to York. And he manages to negotiate an alliance of marriage between his daughter and the King of Scotland's son. And then when that young Scottish prince is orphaned, when his father dies unexpectedly young, he becomes a ward of his future father-in-law, of Henry III. So by a combination of diplomacy and also to some extent luck again, because, you know, who could have predicted that? Alexander II would have died that young. Henry secures not a perpetual but a more lasting peace with Scotland and power over Scotland, really. Um, And at the same time, he takes a more bureaucratic approach to controlling the government of the North. By his reign, royal government in the North is more or less well established through a system of sheriffs and shires. And Henry III's government seems to adopt a kind of pragmatic solution to running that system of government rather than using it to punish local communities and keep them in fear they increasingly sell off the offices that um, the crown depends on to local gentry or local merchants in the city and involve them in royal administration make it to their advantage to be involved in royal administration through negotiating those kinds of agreements rather than imposing them by force So people have got a stake in government. It's not just taxes imposed from London. There's more of a say and more sense of you've got control over. Yes, well a stake is a good way of putting it because the way local government tended to be run in that period is if you were a tax collector you would keep some of the taxes 
for yourself or there'll be in a negotiated agreement where you know you would um you might offer the king a loan for example and then you would be repaid from the taxes that you collected so there are opportunities for people literally to have a stake in royal government because the money isn't being collected and sent to london it's being collected and and kept locally that's not necessarily more popular with ordinary people all ordinary people but it does give some local people literally a financial stake in the management of the system because they're keeping some of the profits for themselves and a lot of that is happening in york yeah so york merchants in particular become quite important money lenders to the crown to start off with the crown is borrowing money mainly from italian merchants but increasingly towards the end of the 13th century, so towards the end of Henry III's reign and into his son's reign, Edward I's reign, they're beginning to borrow more money from local merchants rather than Italians. And then the switch is made completely into the 14th century when English merchants really take over as financiers of the crown in the 1320s and 1330s. Right. We're in the 1200s now. Yeah. We've actually made it sound so far as if Henry III's reign is very stable and orderly. Mm. There is a thing called the Second Baron's War in the middle yes, of that. Yes, that's right. I mean, he suffers rebellions towards the end of his reign as well, but they don't affect the North so much. Most of the fighting, um, you know, with the Great Battle of Lewis, for example, which is one of the great battles of that rebellion and um, attempt to make royal governments more accountable is in Lewis in Sussex, so it's about as far from York as you can get, really. And again, it's luck, I suppose, for Northerners, for the city of York, that that is a civil conflict in which the Northern barons and therefore the city of York don't get much involved. It's much more of a Southern conflict than a Northern one. But Henry III does come and visit York, doesn't he? He does, yes. So if the king turns up, presumably... There's a lot of repainting and stuff. Yes. <laughs> and renovation to be done. He comes in 1220. I think he comes again in 1237, which is when that treaty with Scotland is negotiated and the, a border is established, or a kind of border is established, between the two countries for the first time. And he's here again in about 1250, 1251. So, yes, lots of opportunities for royal hospitality. I think for one of those visits, we have the records of a feast that he... Um, organised, which was um, stupendous in its scale and would have certainly provided a lot of business to to local people. So he visits, but he doesn't live, he doesn't stay here. And by the time that he visits, the royal house has gone out of use. It had probably gone out of use as a royal establishment by King John's reign when it was fought over during the civil uprising in King John's reign in about 1216. And a large part of it is given shortly after that to the Dominican friars to become a Dominican friary. So by Henry III's reign, he's visiting York, but there's no longer a royal house here or royal household. So he's probably staying in the castle. Um, We know that later kings also stayed in buildings in the Minster Close and as guests of some of the religious houses, particularly the friaries. And if the North wasn't involved in the civil unrest, there was always the possibility that there might be trouble with Scotland. Yes. And that is one of the reasons why York Castle got rebuilt, essentially, because it was not in a particularly good state, from what I gather. No, it's rebuilt during this period when um, 
Henry is renegotiating with Alexander II and his son. So 1244 is the date of the beginning of the construction of the keep, which we now know as Clifford's Tower, and that's thought to be part of the sort of posturing, if you like, <laughs> between the kings of England and King of Scotland. It's rather extraordinary to my mind that, that York Castle, that castle, had not had a stone keep prior to that. Uh, it had had several successive timber keeps. You think of other northern castles like Scarborough or Norham or Carlisle, they all had uh, stone keeps much earlier than York did. So it's very late and it does seem to be part of that posturing. And some people have said, but I think this is thought to be fanciful, that it's designed as a four-leafed clover, if you like, a quatrefoil. And that's said to represent sort of the English king's claims of overlordship over four principalities or four kingdoms, Scotland, Wales, Ireland and England. But I think that's probably a bit of later folklore rather than, it's certainly not anything that can be evidenced you know, from the 13th century. So... Once that's built, York is in a kind of much better, yeah. stronger strategic position to either defend itself and the north or to act as a springboard towards mm. Scotland. Mm. And it's Henry III's son, Edward I, yes. who is famous for having a go at Scotland. Yes. People mm. know about Braveheart. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! What happens towards the end of the 13th century is another failure in the dynastic line of Scotland gives the King of England, by then Edward I, the opportunity to intervene and support one candidate against another. And this triggers what are usually now referred to as the Scottish Wars of Independence, which lasted more or less continuously into the 1330s from the 1280s. So there's a break in the middle, but so they're sometimes described as two wars of independence, but more or less continuous warfare in which York is used as a base. And by then, this bureaucracy that I was talking about of royal government through which the country's actually governed, um, the exchequer managing the finances of the crown and collecting taxes, the chancery presiding over... Uh, much of the legal system um, and the Exchequer too had a legal system that was presided over those royal officers of state move to York on frequent occasions not permanently but on frequent occasions between about 1292 and 1336 Does that mean that York was capital of England? Um, that's a modern word <laughs> so nobody would have have described even London as the capital of England or Westminster as the capital of England in that period. But because royal government is based there for months at a time, it is effectively the head, the caput, the chief place of royal government while it's here. And Parliament quite often meets here. There's an important statute of York uh, passed in the Parliament of York in 1322, which limits the powers of the Crown in relation to Parliament. And so all those offices of state, the Exchequer, the Chancery, and Parliament would be physically based here. And again, there's no purpose-built structures for them. And so they're using buildings in the castle, and it's thought that Clifford's Tower, the stone keep in the castle, was largely purposed 
to house the written records of the Royal Treasury um, and provided with sort of fittings and furnishings that would accommodate that. We know that Chancery and also Parliament sometimes met in the Chapter House of York Minster and used that space. So they were using different spaces across the city. It wasn't all concentrated in the in the castle. And also brought a huge number of, of important people, if you like, to the city in their wake. And that presumably means that there's a lot of business to be done for local people supplying yes. all of these very important persons. Yes, I mean, some of the leading military commanders of the day were talking now about the very early 14th century, someone called Andrew Hartley, who's one of the great um, military leaders of under Edward II and Edward III. He lives in Petergate, um, opposite York Minster. He's got a house there. So it's not just that the uh, royal offices are consuming and all their officials and bureaucrats are here and consuming things and the soldiers, uh, but also, you know, noble households like that or, you know, uh, aristocratic households like that. And I would argue by the early 14th century, we're beginning to have some evidence where we can really measure the economy of York. We've got evidence for how much rent cost, for example, and how much uh, food cost in the city and how much wages were. And I think the early 14th century is a little bit of a golden age for York um, because of all this activity and its centre of the campaigns against Scotland. That's quite surprising to me because I'm aware of the four horsemen of the apocalypse yes, yes. in the 14th century. I think it's the century that people would be least likely to choose to live in. Yes. Because not only do you have various wars coming backwards and forwards, but there are famines. Yes. Um, in, was it about 1315, on for about, mm. over about five years, right across Europe. Yes. So people are dying of hunger. Yeah. There is something coming down the track <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the century called the Black Death. Yes. Yet York seems to be flourishing at this time. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right, there are famines, which is to do with very bad weather, spoiling harvests for several years in a row. There are cattle diseases which affect livestock, and so that sort of food supply is also decimated in the second decade of the 14th century. The Scots are invading pretty much regularly, near every year in the second decade of the 14th century, and laying waste you know, large numbers of villages and agricultural settlements. They tend to come down on the Yorkshire side of the Pennines, cross the Pennines near Panel and Harrogate, um, and then go back up on the other side, laying uh, the countryside waste in their wake. And it's very hard, because of all those things coincide, it's really difficult to disentangle the impact of one from the other. And then, yes, in 1349, the Black Death will arrive. But if you look at the, say, rent accounts for the city of York, then the 1320s through to the early 1340s seems to be a real boom period in both the quantity of housing stock increasing, more and more small houses um, for artisans being built, and also the rents of those houses increasing in value. And it's not until you get to the late 1440s that that begins to change. There's also the possibility that those famines are driving people into the towns. In London, for example, we have records of women who are starving to death dying on the streets of London. 
So famines, as we know from modern experience of famines elsewhere in the world, can push people out of the settlements into urban centres, as much as urban centres attracting people because they are a source of employment and jobs and so on. And it could be that both things are at work in York because there is probably a very large, unrecorded, vagrant population as well, which we begin to see more of after the Black Death than we do before, but almost certainly it's there before. So all human life is in York. Yes. In York in the 1340s, there were probably bits of the city which you wouldn't really want to go to at night or Mm. whatever for fear of your personal security. There were probably bits of the city which maybe haven't been rebuilt. Mm. There's certainly evidence of that, as I understand it, from 50 years before where people were quite worried about the security of the Minster, for example, and Mm. putting a wall up. But despite all of that, people in the early 1340s might have been quite optimistic about the future. Uh, Well, that's hard to talk about, sort of optimism and pessimism and things like that, (laughs) isn't it, really? 1336 is the last time that any of the offices of royal government are based in the city for any length of time. So perhaps things are, perhaps the bubble's beginning to burst a little by the 1340s and things are beginning to change. And there are signs that some of the larger houses um, are more difficult to let, if you like, than they had been already by the early 1340s. But that period is when York has reached the apex of its medieval population and it probably is never as populous after, the, the say, the mid-1340s as it had been before for those sort of 20-odd years or so, 20 or 30 years. We're coming to the end of your book. Basically. We are, <laughs> yes, yes. The next book's on the Black Death, though, so that's all right. <laughs> oh, well, that's OK. I'd... I haven't written it yet, but oh, it's in my head. <laughs> would you like to give us a taster? A taster? Well... A lot has been written about the impact of the Black Death in England and a lot of detail because we have a lot of records from the period. But nearly all of it has been about the South, the South or East Anglia. And there is, to my knowledge, one really detailed article about the impact of the Black Death in the north of England, which was published in 1914 and is still widely cited. But actually only scratches the surface of what we could say about the impact of the Black Death in the north of England because there is a lot of evidence that has been missed, I think. We don't have the extensive runs of manorial records on the whole that survived for the south of England and have informed studies of the impact of the plague in the south of England. But we do have some, and we also have a lot of other records which contain evidence, so the rent accounts that I was talking about for the city of York, but also for parts of the countryside as well, and the records of the church, which are very full for the northern province and tell us a lot about how people reacted to the Black Death and enable us to chart its progress as well around the north. On the eve of the Black Death, as it were, because the people knew it was coming. Yes, they? yes, they did. Yeah, so what is the reaction to this impending plague on the part of the authorities you can see attempts to ward it off so the very first notice that we have anywhere in England of the arrival of plague in England actually comes from the Archbishop of York uh, writing a set of instructions about how people should behave 
before the plague has reached the north of England at all. So he can see it coming. And he orders liturgical processions and prayers and penances in order to try and sort of mitigate, reduce the wrath of God. But interestingly, he also refers to modern science, modern science in the 14th century, that is, where the faculty in Paris had produced some important work that associated plague and pestilence with polluted air, bad air. And he mentions that, he references is polluted air that's bringing the plague northwards towards him. So it's an interesting letter because it's anticipating the plague, it's a year ahead, nearly a year ahead, maybe six months ahead of the plague reaching the north of England. So he's anticipating, but he's also mixing up conventional belief that plague is the punishment of, of the wrath of God with contemporary science about what's spreading plague and and how it might be avoided. So you get those sorts of top-down reactions, but you also get some reactions from ordinary people. So there seems to be an increase in people making wills, for example, in 1348. So the plague doesn't really get to the north of England until the beginning of 1349. But in the summer of 1348, when it is already in the south of England, you can see people in the north making wills in greater numbers. And they don't say explicitly we're making our will because we're afraid we're going to die of plague, but there is a definite increase in the number of people making wills, and it seems you know, a plausible speculation that they are anticipating the plague uh, coming northwards and they're making their will, tidying up their affairs in anticipation of that. Right. Enough. I might put some music under that. Yes, <laughs> sad music. There's plenty of room for sad music as the Black Death arrives in York and the Grim Reaper scythes through the population. What torments do they face? And though the city might survive, who will be left to inherit from all those wills? My thanks to our guest, Professor Sarah Rees-Jones, whose book, York, The Making of a City, 1068 to 1350, is published by Oxford University Press. The Spirit of York is Alison Willis. That brief but rousing clip from Braveheart was used for educational purposes and the rights remain with the holder. However, it has to be said that many historians are sceptical about the accuracy of Mel Gibson's Hollywood blockbuster. The closing music was from the album Compline Service with anthems and motets by the choir of Clare College, Cambridge. This episode of History City was made with the help of the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Past at the University of York. So my thanks to Dr Victoria Hoyle and to researcher George Young. Incidentally, Alex Harvey from the Yorkshire Museum, our regular contributor on the post-Roman and Anglian periods, has published his first book, not about York, but instead the Isle of Axholm in North Lincolnshire. There's a link to the Amazon page in our show notes. This show was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. For links to further information, please look at our notes, and if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City. 
and we hope you can join us next time.